You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Thank you. Good morning. Um, so there's some $5 words in here, so bear with me as I read. But you're going to be turning to uh, page um, 592 in the chairback Bibles in front of you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 3. All right. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Etria, and Trachonitis and Lysianus, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the regions around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? He said to them, Do not extort money for, from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and they were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and, get, and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other extortions, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, Herodias, the brother's wife, and for all evil things that Herod had done, added this to them, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Pray with me now. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd be with Matt today as he preaches the gospel and preaches your word. I pray that you can open our eyes and our hearts to your word. And to start off this new year at church in this community is fantastic. And I pray that um, you can give Matt the wise words to speak in your name. Amen. Well, amen. Thank you, sir. Well, good morning of 2023. How weird is that? We are already in the future. 
This is, you are, you are here, you made it, congrats, and this is where we're living. It's so good to have each and every one of you here this morning. For those of you who don't know, my name is Matt Gonzalez, our pastoral assistant. I assist pastors for a living, that's what I do, um, and it's a gift, really, truly, really is a gift to be able to open up January 1st here together as a church family. How cool is that? Like, that only happens like every seven years. It's cool. And some of you may know, I am also from Arkansas, the great state. I had a couple of my dear Arkansans sitting over here last hour. It was great. I got some woo pigs. Sorry, KU. Uh, but we got some woo pigs, and it was great. But when I went uh, to Arkansas Tech University in the great state of Arkansas, I studied emergency management and administration for my undergrad. You, like many people, are probably wondering, what the heck is that? And you're exactly right. I don't even understand still. A lot of the degree program is FEMA certifications and uh, disaster response training. You get to fly drones. I flew one into a tree. It was great. Uh, and it's just fun stuff. But before you get into any of that kind of cool stuff, you take like six classes on two very basic topics, disasters and the human mind. Because there's actually a really unique link between those two. We learned very early on that as people get used to a natural hazard or a danger, they actually become less interested in protecting themselves from it. You kind of get numb to it. For instance, with modern technology, hurricanes are incredibly easy to predict and track. The government's able to warn people in the path of one weeks in advance with electronic notices, radio warnings, uh, and anything else they can do to warn people who are in the path of the storm. But despite all this, you've probably seen him on TV, haven't you? He's probably got a mullet, and he lives in Florida. There's that one guy who refuses to leave town. That's my cousin. Uh, he, he refuses to leave town, and he mocks the storm and calls everybody else a coward because they want to leave and get out of the path of it. Every hurricane season, every city that gets hit, there's that guy. And every hurricane season, first responders work around the clock to save those people's lives because the storm really was that bad. And many of those who stay, thankfully, they, are, they survive and are humbled by their experience. But sadly, there's a lot of people who don't because they didn't listen to the warnings. And it's not just hurricanes. I mean, we're in Kansas, right? It's not just hurricanes that cause this in people. We've all seen him sitting on his front porch as this huge tornado comes across the plain. Some of you just looked at your neighbor because that's them. But the reality is we are not very good at listening to warnings. We don't like them. Whether it's about storms or as a kid, our mom telling us not to touch a hot stove, when danger is present, we, for some reason, seem to believe that we know best, even when we don't. And our text today actually pokes right at the heart of that pride. And it presents us with a warning message for one of the biggest events in history. And that warning comes from an unlikely source. But it's not a hurricane we're waiting for or being warned about. It's the coming of a promised king. And the whole Bible, from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, has been setting the stage for this moment. Kingdoms have risen and fallen. God has acted in power. Prophecies have been spoken. But then silence. Four hundred years of silence. Let that sink in. 
There's been instruction from the Lord, prior warnings of the coming storm, notes on what to look for, but then silence. And this promised great Messiah hadn't come. Twenty generations had lived and died waiting for the coming, this advent of the king. And sure, there'd been rumors, excited whispers coming out of the city of Bethlehem, but that was 30 years ago. And where is he? How strange then, when a man begins to cry out in the middle of the wilderness that the promised king was coming, and soon. It makes you wonder if this, this could be the one, if this is the real message that we're supposed to listen to. Now, our author Luke definitely seems to think so. But as we come to the text, we've got some detective work to do, and some work needs to happen in our hearts. Because the question for us is, how can we be certain that this warning message is legit? How do we know that this is one to listen to? How are we to believe that the hurricane, if you will, this coming king, is really on his way? And if that message is true, what, is, what does it say? And what does that message mean for us? I want to look at that together. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you turn to Luke chapter 3, verse 1 with me? And there we'll see our first big idea from the text to consider. First big idea is, you can trust God's message of salvation. Now, our text opens on a unique note. There's a list of rulers and leaders in the land. And then there's this section from the book of Isaiah. And for a book that has been mostly narrative, this feels like a really weird curveball to throw in at the beginning of chapter 3. But our author Luke is doing something clever here. Now, if you'll remember with me, at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he stated that he's writing it so that his reader might have certainty of the things of which they heard. And so, Luke proceeds to build his argument by giving us several categories of trustworthiness for the text. And I want to draw our attention there for a moment. Firstly, we see this message from God is coming at a trustworthy time. Now, we need to make a quick note about a time jump that has occurred. And first, we've got to understand, we have a new Caesar. Augustus, the guy who called the census during the Christmas story around the birth of Christ, he's been dead for at least 15 years. So some years have passed between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. It's important for us because what it shows us is that this is a real time. This is anchored in real years. It's not happening in fairy tale Galilee somewhere. It's not once upon a time in the city of Nazareth. No, specifically, it's happening in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. In our dating system, this is about 29 AD. And as if that wasn't specific enough for us, Luke goes on to give us several more leaders to anchor his timeline, those $5 words and locations that Keegan was talking about. 
And we learn that it's not just in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, but during the specific reign of four other men. It's as if Luke is saying, hey, if there's any confusion, it's not only in this time zone, but like it's this Tuesday. Like he's, he's giving us such an amount of certainty that we don't get in other records. It's complete timeline overkill. And Luke then goes on, as if that wasn't enough, to beat the dead horse yet again. Because if all of those secular leaders weren't enough, if they weren't doing the job of convincing us that this message is timed correctly, he also tells us that this is during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, religious leaders. Luke has given us the gift of certainty by rooting our timeline in both Jewish and Gentile ways of keeping time. For the extra skeptical or the history nerds like myself, you may be interested to know that the ancient historians Tacitus, Josephus, and Philo of Alexandria all affirm this timeline. And scripture is absolutely sufficient, but it is always exciting when secular historians echo what we have recorded in God's word. Now Luke is arguing this is coming at a trustworthy time, and secondly, he argues for us that this is a trustworthy messenger you've been reading Luke, you've been reading John the Baptist's resume. He's been building the trustworthiness of John as the messenger of this coming king. And Luke starts his gospel with a prophecy of John's birth. And then in Luke chapter 1, John is born, and his father Zechariah prophesies that he will be a prophet of the Most High. In fact, Luke has actually dedicated more verses in chapter 1 to John the Baptist than he has to Christ himself. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus takes the stage in chapter 2, showing he is clearly the greater. But Luke has established a precedent for us to follow. If you're looking for Christ, this long-awaited Savior, that's who he's arguing Jesus is, you first need to look for John. And here he is. This is like if a weatherman you watched every single morning came to your front door to warn you about a coming storm. This is not the next door neighbor kid with a walkie-talkie. He's a trustworthy messenger at a trustworthy time, bringing for us, thirdly, Luke argues, a trustworthy message. In verse 2, we see that the word of God came to John. He's given a message from the Most High to proclaim, to preach to the people. And so John quickly steps into his role as the messenger of the coming king. And so he goes out and full of the word of God, proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke shows us this ministry is designed to get people ready for the coming of the king. In verse 4 we see, as it is written in the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Friends, the message coming from the mouth of John, this new prophet of God, is from the mouth of a prophet who lived 600 years before him. Isaiah. And what we are to understand is that if God's word was trustworthy then, then it is trustworthy now. 
So what is that message? What is he preaching? Verse 4 shows us, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. The image that we are to see is that of an ancient king who's coming to conquer a land. And when they would do that, they would send messengers out through all the land with their full authority. And the messengers would call the people to lay down their weapons, throw open the gates of their cities, and surrender to the coming king. Or face complete destruction. The text continues, showing us that every valley will be filled. The high places brought low, literally humbled. The crooked places made straight, and the rough places level. Why? So that all flesh would see the salvation of God. Luke is arguing that this message that John is preaching will impact everyone. The high, the low, the powerful, the poor. Everyone will be impacted, and therefore the message is intended for everyone. And there is a call from John to trust in this message of the coming storm, because each will face the storm. Even you will face the storm. And so what about you? Are you trusting in God's message of salvation? Do you trust in that incredible message of God? Because, friends, the message of God, of salvation, is trustworthy. Luke has argued that, and the historical record reflects it. But the hard work we have to do is to swallow our pride and to come to terms with it. But it's not just checking a box, not just flipping a light switch. It's more than just a mental exercise. It's a heart change that we're called to. And it's a deeply personal question. The answer that we give to the, if we're trusting in the message of God, reveals much about the condition, about what is happening in our hearts. And if we really believe that the message is worthy of our trust, then as we'll see in the next section of our text, we have to listen to it. And friends, the question of our trust in God's message is crucial for us to answer. If we ignore it, Luke is showing us that the coming king will not ignore us, whether you be in the low places or the high places. And the all flesh that is mentioned in Isaiah refers to the people of John's day, and it refers to Shawnee day one, 2023. Many people, when faced with the question of John, are they trusting in this message? Heard. They listened, and they trusted in it, and they went to be baptized by him. But as we see in our next section of text, the impact of trusting that message is far more personal than we are comfortable with. And there we see our second big idea. That each of us must really repent. Verse 
So after walking through the hot sun, after listening and trusting this message, what encouraging word does John have to say to all of these crowds who have come to be baptized by him? Verse 7 shows it. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? What? Like, bro, I just walked all the way here from Jerusalem through the scorching desert to stand in the hot sun and listen to you because I believe. I want to be baptized, and you call me a snake? Yeah. And maybe you're in the same boat. Maybe you're feeling what these crowds are feeling. Like, man, I stayed up super late to welcome in the new year. I woke up incredibly tired. I got my 18 and a half kids dressed, drug them all to church, and now I'm sitting here half asleep listening to you telling me that the word of God calls me to repent. Like, seriously? And you're right. In the same way, John is preaching a message that his audience was not expecting. And I'm convinced that Luke intends his reader to catch this as well. If you look with me at verse 7, he calls them a brood of vipers. And our Old Testament alarm should be going off. Because John is making a direct call back to Genesis chapter 3. When there is a serpent in the garden and sin enters the world. God promises that there will be conflict between the many descendants of the serpent and the one promised descendant of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. John's message is clear. In calling them serpents, he is telling them that the people had become the descendant of the serpent. They are the many who are against the coming king. He was telling them that They might think they're on the same team as the coming king, but they're not. They're wearing a Broncos jersey in Kansas City. You're on the wrong team, and everybody sees it. They are his enemies, and they're promised wrath. In the book of Mark, you you may be feeling like you've heard this story before because the book of Mark actually records this exact same encounter slightly differently. In the book of Mark, it's the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite who John calls vipers. But here, it's everyone who is coming to be baptized by him. Everyone, each and every one of them is under his warning. And John continues this line of thought. He says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? If we're reading the Bible casually, we might just go, "Ah, that's a rhetorical question. Or make the logical jump that it's John. Of course it's John. He's the one who's standing there warning them. But John's question is not about himself, nor is it a rhetorical question. It has a very clear answer. Who warned them to flee from the coming wrath? God himself, through his prophet Isaiah. And John is telling them that though the crowds have listened to the warning of God, they have completely ignored the rest of the word of God. They have neglected the commands of this coming king, and they are under wrath. 
And John doubles down. He calls his hearers out even more. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, he says. And there's that repentance word again. It's repentance is a turning away from something. Here in the text, it's sin. A, a turning from sin is what John is calling them to. And it's with that that the point of what John is saying truly begins to show. He warns them. Do not trust in Abraham, your ancestor. He says, your bloodline, your ethnic identity as a descendant of Abraham is worthless in this conversation. Because God could make new children for Abraham out of rocks if he wanted to. Your bloodline doesn't change the fact that you are an enemy of God. And he goes on to explain that every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 9. In the message, it does not matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, if you are powerful or lowly. All have sinned. All are under the wrath of God. And Colossians 3 echoes this, teaching us that it is because of sin that the wrath of God is coming. But whose sin? It was their sin. It's your sin. It's my sin. And those who do not repent and turn from sin and self and then bear fruit in keeping with repentance will face the wrath of God. This is the point where if Luke chapter 3 were a classic movie, the soundtrack would play, bum, 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 and the crowd would gasp. It's a heavy note. And understandably shocked, the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? What do we do? And Luke records for us a simple, straightforward answer. It's nothing groundbreaking. John tells the crowds to take care of the poor. The tax collectors not to lie or to steal. The soldiers not to steal or to bear false witness or to covet another person's belongings. John has pretty much walked them through the second half of the Ten Commandments. You're wondering what you should do? God has already laid out what you should do in his word. And you haven't even kept the second half of the Cliff's Notes version of the law. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet or desire someone else's belongings. John says, you haven't loved your neighbor. How much less have you loved the Lord your God? Now, what does this repentance that John preaches look like? John says, obey God's commands. And they can't. They haven't. Friends, the call of repentance is a realization. And it's a realization that must ring true for us today as well. That we are far more fallen than we realize. And the same was true for them. Are we willing to repent of self? 
Are we willing to admit that we are lawbreakers? Who, as Romans 3.23 teaches us, have fallen short of God's glorious standard? Or people who, as Romans 6.23 teaches us, have earned in their sin the wage of death. True repentance goes hand in hand with an admission that I cannot save myself from God's wrath on sin. It's an admission that apart from God's grace, I am dead in sin and by nature his enemy, hopeless before his coming wrath. And for those here who have not been transformed by God's incredible grace, the call of repentance is to turn from sin and to trust the messenger of God in that coming king, to trust in the salvation of the Lord and to see your life transformed, to repent. Because the Lord is coming. And for those who are in Christ, the challenge is to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. While remembering who we were before the grace of God transformed us. And so often, friends, we want an easy repentance. To say, ah, my bad and then to continue to live lives completely unchanged by the gospel. And when we fall into that mindset, we forget that the gospel not only saved us, but it transformed us and calls us to be continually transformed into the image of Christ, our King. To live according to his word. For all of us, the repentance that John preaches confronts us with our pride of believing that our bloodline or ethnicity can save us from the coming wrath on sin. That our nationality as Americans can save us from the coming wrath on sin. That the faith of our parents or grandparents can save us from the coming wrath on sin. That our latest promotion or the amount of wealth that we have can save us. Or, I fear most often, that our good intentions or good behavior can save us from God's wrath on sin. Friends, we are in the path of the coming storm. And the question for each of us then is, have you really repented? Have you realized that you are dead in sin by nature? And by nature, not righteous. Have you called out to God for mercy? Have you repented of your easy repentance where no good fruit comes from your life? Have you repented of the sin that you keep running back to with an excuse ready every time to justify it? Friends, I urge you to repent even now. Repent of the pride of thinking that anything in you makes you worthy of the grace of God. Will you repent? Because as our last section of the text will show us, everyone will face the fire. Take a few moments, even now, if you need
with the call of repentance fresh on our minds, we see our last big idea to consider together this morning. Everyone will face the fire. The message of repentance is a heavy hit to take. And after hearing that message and being called to an active, life-transforming repentance, the crowds listening to John were in expectation. They'd been punched in the face, so to speak, by him. And they began to wonder if John could be the coming king. Is this man the Christ, the Messiah? And John quickly nips that in the bud, explaining clearly, clearly that he is not the Christ, that he is the messenger, the one who goes before the king. He's the easy part. He's the evacuation notice, if you will, not the hurricane itself. And the message of John is a message of preparation. And he points his listeners not to himself, but to one who is far greater than he is, far mightier than he is. And in doing that, he presents us with two baptisms. His baptism, one of water, and this coming Christ's baptism, this coming King's baptism, one of the Holy Spirit and of fire. And John's saying, I baptize by making people go into water, but this coming King, he will baptize people by making the Holy Spirit go into them and then refine them through fire. But John is also clear. Not everyone will be baptized with the king's baptism. A great division, he says, is about to take place. And this Christ's winnowing fork, a tool for dividing wheat and chaff in the ancient world, is in his hand. He's ready to rock. And his threshing floor will be cleared. No single section or piece will be overlooked. But who will be divided? John teaches us that the wheat, those who repent, will be gathered into his barn. But the chaff, those who don't repent, will be burned with unquenchable fire. To say the least, it's harsh language. It's uncomfortable language. And the key for us to get here is that everyone will face the fire. However, a key distinction that John draws is that not everyone will face the same fire. John shows us two fires that people can go through. First, you have the baptism of fire that the king is bringing. And this is a refining fire. The trials, the struggles, the suffering that do await those who have repented and placed their trust in Christ the king. In fact, God promises his people that they will face trials of many kinds, suffering of many kinds, but they are a testing and a refining of our faith to transform us into the image of Christ our King. And one day, they will end, and we will step out of that fire perfected in his presence. But the second fire that John presents to us is an unquenchable fire. This is the wrath of God poured out on sin. 
God is perfectly just and perfectly holy. The fullness of his wrath will be poured out on sin. Make no mistake, friends. And those who do not repent stay as enemies of God. They reject the coming king and they don't listen to John's message. But friends, what's coming is far worse than any storm or hurricane could ever be. The warning of John doesn't just impact your life or your family or your belongings. It impacts your very eternity. And again, the call of John here is to repent. Everyone will face the fire. Will you face the king's baptism of fire because you have repented of sin and trust in Christ, the long-awaited Savior? Or will you face the unquenchable fire of God's wrath on sin, the fullness of his, sin, of his wrath on sin poured out for eternity? Because a division is happening, and each of us must face that question personally. Your mom or your dad your husband or your wife, your kids, friend or family member cannot choose for you. And John's message is an ultimatum. It's a crossroads and no one can avoid it. Each must choose. So the question is, which fire will you face? In verse 19, we see that Herod, the Tetrarch, he faces it. He's faced with the warning and confrontation of John over his sin. And this warning message, for a gross violation of God's law by sleeping with his sister-in-law. He's full of sin. And to all of his sins, Luke records, he adds this. He locks up John in prison. He silences the messenger of the king. Rejecting the coming king himself in the process. Herod chooses to face the fire of God's wrath. To face the coming storm that John warned him of. And he may have thought this action would save him, but it won't. For though he may silence the messenger, he cannot silence the message. And though he may shut up John in prison, he cannot stop the coming of King Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and the wheat and chaff will be separated. Well, that's the last time I'm ever going to a New Year's service in Mill Creek. <laughs> this preacher guy's crazy. Where's Jeremy? Uh, but really, okay, let's, let's lift the pressure real quick. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. This is not the sort of text we expect to be preached at the start of a new year. Fair? <laughs> now, our culture points us to 2,023 steps to a more fulfilled life in 2023. Or just something that feels more uplifting to start a new year. And a text like this can blindside us. If you're anything like me, being told that I'm in the path of a terrible coming storm and I need to listen to a warning, this is the last thing I want to hear on January 1st. But one of the strangest parts of our text is that John's warning of wrath is good news. 
And it is a good thing to preach at the start of a new year. Verse 18 actually tells us that with what we have recorded and with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. Like Luke the author, you and I have very different definitions of what good news is. So why is this good news for a new year? This is good news because God has made a way for us to be saved from his righteous wrath on sin. Yeah, you're in the path of the storm, but the rescue helicopter is here. And to the path of someone who's in the path of a storm, there is no better news. And when we understand the depth of our wickedness and the power of God's righteous wrath on sin, we see the power of his grace to save us from the wrath that we fully deserve. And friends, he not only warns us of his wrath and calls us to repent, but he has made a way to find life in him. And on the cross, Christ bore the fullness of the wrath of God against the sins of those who have faith in him. And he became sin, who knew no sin, that we might be called the righteousness of God. The certainty that we have in the message of John is that it is never, couldn't possibly be, of our own works or good intentions that we are saved. It is because of Christ and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And that, that is outstanding news for 2023 even if it is a shock to our systems. The message of John is both incredible and terrible. It's full of great warning and great hope. And as John is telling us, the Lord is coming. Repent. A few sermons are more horrifying than one that feels like hellfire and brimstone and completely misses the gospel. But praise God that he does not just show us the depth of our sin and the righteousness of his coming wrath, but he has sent Jesus. Repent of sin and trust in King Jesus. Pastor author Tim Keller offers an excellent quote here for those who would submit to Christ as king. He says this, The gospel is this, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Friends, trust in Christ and bear the fruit that God desires in keeping with repentance. His first advent has come. We just celebrated it. But his second advent is still yet to come. I pray that we would be ready. A people whose hearts are prepared. Who have prepared the way for the king. As we close out, I encourage you to spend this time repenting of sin. And praising God for his great grace in Christ Jesus. Our pastors, elders, staff members would love to pray with you if you'd like. Let's pray together.
God, we give you praise that you are righteous and holy and full of grace. God, we thank you for the warning message of John recorded for us in the book of Luke. We thank you for the certainty that we can have in knowing that it is from you. God, would you convict our hearts of the places we need to repent? And would we give, grace, would we give praise to Jesus for his great grace? Would we trust in him? And for those who don't know him, Father, would you convict them of sin and give them new life in him? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.